So there's the chanting portion for tonight. Chanting is definitely something worth practicing. The first, the first reason why chanting is good has nothing really to do with the content of what you're chanting. It's just the fact that it keeps you busy, keeps you occupied. It focuses you, focuses your attention. And because it's not sensual like singing, it doesn't have the same risk of, of, of creating an attachment to it. Of course, it's easy to become still attached to, to chanting, but not in the same way as with singing where it's pleasurable. Chanting is not always pleasurable, but it's something that focuses you and, and so quiets the mind. It brings a sort of peace to the mind. It brings happiness. It just doesn't necessarily bring pleasure. So during the time that you're chanting, you're not killing, you're not stealing, you're not, you're not doing all the many other things you could be doing that might uh, distract your mind or, or defile your mind. So that's a good thing. Then the um, the comfort or the 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 peace that comes from knowing what you're chant knowing that what you're chanting is something sacred, you know, something special. Or or whatever, it's something good, however you look at it. So some people for some people the Buddha's teaching is not sacred, but it's good. For some people it's not good, for those people they shouldn't do chanting. Uh, they should learn learn they should question themselves because the Buddha's teaching is good. But something good, and when you think of it as something good, when you think this is something good that you're chanting, you know, it's like if someone, um, if you learn uh, a saying, right, you have a quote from some very famous person, you feel good about saying this, and you, you oh, this, did you, you, do you not know what uh, Socrates said, or You feel good about it. You feel, or or maybe it's someone no one's ever heard of, and you want to spread this along and to promote this person, this person whose views you believe you agree with. We, the expression of the Buddha's teaching, something we feel happy uh, vocalizing, and not only vocalizing but also memorizing. No, so like. I've almost memorized, or you know, at times I've memorized the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta. I probably couldn't do it all by heart, but it's because I'm lazy and don't chant it as often as I could. But when you have it in your mind, then you can say, dear, you, when someone asks you, what, is the, what did the Buddha mean by the middle way? You say, ah, oh, well, the Buddha said, Dweyume Bhikkhuve Antapapajitena Nasevitama. What he meant by the middle way is that there are two extremes that you should never cling to. And so you can sound smart and so on. No. 
you, you actually have backing. Right? Memorizing the Buddha's teaching is very useful to not just to teach, but also to defend your own beliefs from people, to defend Buddhism, because you have backing for it. People say, the middle way means moderation. So, you know, you don't kill big things, but, you know, killing a little bit is... Don't, 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 don't steal regularly, but, you know, moderation. No, they usually say with drinking, they say, I think the middle way, one glass of wine, you know. Moderation. Moderation is not the middle way, certainly not. Buddha said there are two extremes. The, the middle way is actually this, it's, it, it's not moderate. See, moderation is so broad. Middle way is a razor's edge in between two extremes that you should never even approach. If you can, if you can stop yourself from going in either direction at all, then you're in the middle way. So it's a razor's edge. It's, it, there, there's no room for leeway. Actually, it's quite extreme, though. <laughs> have to be exact in order to follow the middle way. So the first extreme is is uh, indulging in sensual pleasure. Any indulgence, in the sense of of um, desire for it, this is leaving the middle way. And any uh, any aversion or or repression. Of of uh, your wants, you know. I mean, the truth is, the, the teaching of the middle way is not the teaching of talking about this idea of the middle way is not the most common of the Buddhist teaching. It's come to to be kind of a catchphrase for Buddhism. The Mahayana middle way is actually different, but the one in the the Dhammacakapavatthana Sutta, which we understand to be the first discourse the Buddha gave. Is is actually only it, it, it's, it is a, an important teaching, but the reason he gives it is quite clear because he's talking to five the Panchavagya, the five monks who are torturing themselves. So they were of the view that there are two extremes: sensual pleasure and torture. This one's bad. This one's good. That was their belief. So that is the reason why the Buddha said no. Because, remember, they, they what? They left the Buddha, right? They saw the Buddha was, had given this up, so they said he must be going back here. And the Buddha said, guess what? It's a false dichotomy. You've got a third alternative. Give up them both. So they thought you have to give up this one, so then you have to go here. Which is kind of silly, you know. As Buddhists, you think of it. We're smart because, you know, they say hindsight, hindsight is always twenty twenty. And so, so we're like, how stupid were those Panchavak? <laughs> they didn't know it. Because we know, you know, you don't have to torture yourself. That's obviously not the answer. But really, think about before you, before you learned anything about Buddhism. And for people born Buddhist, it's not that easy. But for all of us, you know, what were we? What were we thinking? We're just like these guys. Either you indulge or you repress. And so the Buddha taught, it's neither. He taught mindfulness. The Eightfold Noble Path. So chanting is good for that. Good for helping you to know your stuff. But 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 the best thing I like about chanting is having it for yourself. 
having it inside. So yes, it's the act of doing it is wonderful, and this that's another thing, the community, and the being around people, being in a group of people who, well, it's hard to find a group like this. Think of the groups that we have to associate with on a daily basis in our lives. Think about my friends before I became Buddhist. And I haven't seen head or tail of them since. Gone our separate ways. Very hard. And now we, we're here together with people who are not... I got myself... I got caught up in a group of... Uh, debating with a group on the internet. I wasn't didn't mean to debate. I just thought it'd be interesting to listen to what these people had to say. So I introduced myself. And suddenly they're... they're Debating, they're, they're they're interrogating me on on my views and so on. And uh, it was an atheist community, and I was I'm interested because I consider myself to be atheist, and so I wanted to talk with them. But it turns out there's so much more than atheists. And then they start talking about how we should just get together and drink and and shoot darts or something. I'm like, okay, I'm out. See, these are the communities. This, this is what else you could be doing. The other communities you could be involved in. You were involved in people. It's amazing. People who don't want to drink. That, first of all, is difficult to find. People who, who have taken on a lifestyle. Of not, not, or taken on precepts, as actual precepts. Not killing, not stealing, not cheating, not lying, and not taking drugs or alcohol. They've actually taken these as precepts. So for some people that's horrible. How could you give up all this? But anyone must has to agree that, you know, having a Buddhist look after your house while you're away is not a not a bad choice. Right? If you're worried about who your daughter is going to marry, well a Buddhist is not a bad choice if they're keeping the five precepts. And there's a reason for that because there's something wonderful about it. There's something very safe about it, whether or not you think that we're a bunch of emotionless zombies or not, because we don't live life to the fullest. That's the funny thing, is debating with atheists, materialists, actually, that in the end, you, you know, all these uh, ideas about mind and body and quantum physics and and it's all useless, because in the end, they're, they're just a bunch of guys sitting around drinking miserable. I mean, I think they're miserable, and they think they're having fun. They think I'm miserable, so there they are. Sorry, that was kind of on my mind, because it was just very jarring. And this kind of community is much more pleasant and peaceful. There's a, there's a term for this, they call it the wind tunnel. I think the wind tunnel, it's where you you only you block out you block out alternative opinions. <laughs> I think it's called a wind tunnel. It's where you only you're only interested in people who agree with you. Which they say is a very bad thing. Sure, it is a bad thing. I, I can see how it could be a bad thing if you weren't Buddhist. <laughs> right. Everyone says that, no? I mean Debate is interesting, but debate, see, people take debate as their life, right? And they think of themselves as, they find pleasure in debating, that's the point. And that's why they do it. 
So I think there's room to say, I don't really take pleasure in debating. If I'm going to debate something, it's because I really would like them to um, agree with me, you know, or to, to, to learn something from me. If I think they're not going to agree with me, then I'm like, well, that's not fun for me. It's not, I, don't I don't do it because it's interesting, because it's fun. Buddhist monks don't have fun, you know that already. Okay. So we should we should think of this as sacred. You know, what do Buddhists hold sacred? I think we do hold things as sacred, in the sense that they're very precious and important to us. This kind of a gathering is very precious and very important. To have a group, to have a sangha, to have a community, something we shouldn't take lightly. I don't think we do, and I think uh, all of you probably take it less lightly than I do because I live here, and I get to do it every day. But for many people, they're not, they would like to be here tonight, but they're not able to be. So, um, wonderful to have people coming, and wonderful to have, have you all here. The chanting isn't, so it's true that chanting isn't the core practice that we're striving to master. The Buddha said this, you're called the Satchaya Bahulo, someone who chants a lot is called Satchaya Bahulo. No Jay Dhamma Vihari, not, not a Dhamma Vihari, not one who lives by the Dhamma. The life, living by the Dhamma does not, is not, does not come from chanting. Living by the Dhamma comes from four things. I've given this talk before, some of you probably. Number one, na divasang atinamiti, not letting the days go by. Number two, narinchati patisala nang, not giving up, not discarding one's solitude. Neglecting, not neglecting one solitude. Anu yun jati anjatang jeto samatang. Number three, uh, cultivating internal focus and, and peace. Number four, Uttarinchasa Banyaya Atang Bajanati. This is this one you have to explain. Uttarinchasa Banyaya Atang Bajanati. Understanding the fully understanding the meaning of the Buddhist teaching with wisdom that is higher. The talk is given in regards to one who has studied. So the the, the talk starts with talking about a monk. Uh, who studied, who studied the Dhamma. So he studied the Dhamma, Chakabhata, and the Sutta, and so on. But then maybe they do waste their time, maybe they don't go find solitude, maybe they don't get concentration, and they get stuck just on this lower knowledge, this knowledge that comes from books. Many people I met in Sri Lanka are very knowledgeable about the Dhamma, but they don't seem to be at all knowledgeable about practice. Some people very smart in the Dhamma but not practicing this is very dangerous so the Buddha said 
you have this uttari, which means higher, uh, higher knowledge. With wisdom. Understand the meaning of the Buddha's teaching, with higher wisdom. So the, the teaching of the Buddha is not just an intellectual thing. It's not enough that you know it is the middle way. You say, okay, well now I know, I'll live my life, I won't follow those two. That doesn't get you there. The moment that you achieve, how you know it doesn't get you there is because the moment that you achieve the middle way, the next moment you enter into Nibbana. No. The moment you achieve the middle way is the first moment that you realize Nibbana. That is the middle way. That is the, the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path comes to fruition at the moment of stream entry, the moment when one realizes Nibbana. So, point being, don't think that you're on the middle way. You've got to find that razor edge. We're either one way or the other way all the time until we finally realize the, the, the perfect way. We get perfect, in, perfect intonation, perfectly in, in tune. So four things. Don't waste your time. Don't don't neglect to come to a place like this that secludes you from the world, secludes you from uh, sensuality, secludes you from distraction, secludes you from conflict. And then focus your mind. So we shouldn't be sitting here thinking about home or thinking about work or thinking about the past or the future at all. We should be sitting here, sitting here. Yeah? We should be sitting here, sitting. Our mind should be here as well, not just our body. When we're sitting here, we know we're sitting here. That's sitting here, sitting here. And number four, we should study uh, study ourselves. We'll use this as an opportunity to study the truth, study ourselves, and study reality, and study the truth. So this is what we're here to do. One thing I wanted to talk about for a while, so I thought I was talk about it tonight, but instead of talking about anything, is um, the sort of things that can come up in meditation when we do look, when we do begin to study ourselves. Because I think uh, it's becoming my favorite way of explaining meditation. I was uh, recently in the hospital with my father. I spent five nights together with my father in the hospital. So I got to know all the nurses and talk to them about meditation and so on. And this one nurse, she was kind of interested. You know, you think it's kind of this fake interest because she knows I want her to be interested or something. And she said, she said, so what is meditation in a nutshell? And I thought about it and I said to her, I said, Studying yourself, and I think I, I think that's my favorite explanation so far. Meditate well in in two words. No, what's a two-word definition of meditation? Studying yourself. That to me is because it sets the tone quite nicely. Meditation is not just sitting there zoning out. Meditation is uttarinchasapanyaya atangbajanati, coming to know the truth, what we've studied, what we've been taught, coming to understand it. No, I mean, not even what we taught, but that's 
coming to understand reality. But what is reality? It's ourselves. It's, it's this experience. But see, as we're studying ourselves, there are experiences that occur that, that take us out of the path, that stop us from learning about ourselves. Right? There's lots of bad things that stop us from learning about ourselves. The five hindrances. Kama, chanta, bhaya, bhada, udacca, kukucca, No. Tinamida, udacca, kukucca, vichikicca. Liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt, the five hindrances. Fiancés, that kind of thing, you know, get, get in the way of practice. We have two people here who, who, who visited me in Sri Lanka, and they both finished the meditation course. I never thought I'd be in a room with you two again. This is wonderful. <laughs> Really quite special, actually. I just thought I'd bring that up. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, I won't tell that story. These things, so there are bad things that prevent us from progressing in the practice, but there are also good things that prevent us from progressing in the practice. What does that mean? My teacher always, my teachers, again and again, he, he, he described these as di bang di. Di means good, di is a Thai word, means good. Bang means um, blocks or it gets in the way. Bang, bang means to obscure or to. Um, block, something like block. Can't think of the English word right now. Yeah, blocks, obscures, or gets in the way of... of so di bang di means good that gets in the way of good. There are good things that stop you from achieving the, a higher good. And in brief, based on my, my description of what I think of as meditation, you can think of it as anything that... any good thing that is not studying that is not the act of studying. So if you want to be very simple about it, we don't have to list them all up, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, anything that stops you from studying, prevents you from studying. So they're good things in the sense that they're not hurting you, they're not going to bring suffering, they're pleasurable, but they're bad or they're, they're a problem in the sense that they stop us from studying. They're not the act of studying. They're kind of the fruit or byproduct of the practice. And they can be cultivated, but they don't lead anywhere, except to more of themselves. They're called sankara. They're artificial. They're a state of mind that you create, and it eventually disappears. So. Altogether, there's ten of them. And they're not bad things, they're good things, but they will get in your way if you cling to them, if you're not mindful of them. So, first one is obhasa, which means um, lights. I'm always asking people about lights and colors and pictures, because 
Oh, as my teacher always does, and I just follow him. But the the reason is because they're 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 a sort of a, a summary of all the rest of them. You know, it means something special. Did you experience something special? So we often ask people, did they see lights? And then they say, no, but had this other crazy experience happen to me. And we always just ask about lights or colors or pictures. It's a common one. And it's quite common among Buddhists who have done a lot of good deeds, you know, who have lived their lives involved in charity, religious people who have always been charitable and kind and have cultivated that because they have such radiant um, minds that uh, there actually is a brightness in the mind and when they close their eyes. Some people very quick, very quickly see these things. Westerners don't have it so much, and not for a while anyway, but and not as frequent, but it comes. So the point being that there's, they're special, right? Sometimes you're sitting and you feel like the roof has been taken off your room, or like someone has opened the door. You're sitting and it's like, oh, the light's shining, and then you open your eyes and no, it's not. Why is it bright in the room suddenly? You open your eyes, oh, it's still dark. Right? This happened. Sometimes people see Buddha images, or if they're Christian, they see Jesus Christ, or you know, and so, so on and so on. Some people see nature. Some people see colors or strange, swirling things, and so on. And this is one of the sort of the gateways to getting lost in meditation, because you start to extrapolate and you play with it. You know, there are actually meditations where you can play with these images and make more of them, but if you don't have guidance, very easy to get lost. People can actually drive themselves crazy because they just go on and on and on. The mind gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and then they don't know how to get back. And they go crazy for you know, temporary insanity kind of thing. I've seen this happen. But to teach her that kind of thing is dangerous because it's con it's concepts. Well, con concepts can go anywhere. It can are infinite. You can always imagine something more extravagant. It goes on until you finally break. Reality is not like that. Reality is what it is. It's not controllable. It's not special. Yeah. So reality doesn't do that to you. So there's nothing wrong with seeing things, but the point is we get caught up in them. So we have meditators say to themselves, seeing, seeing, just to remind themselves that it's only seeing, just like with everything else. Remind yourself. Number two, we have piti, which is rapture. There was a woman this morning who asked me about this. She had some crazy feelings inside, like a vibrating feeling. This is quite common. Some people have rocking feelings. They feel their whole body. Their body does shake. They feel their body rocking back and forth. Some people feel very light. Some people feel very heavy. All of this we call piti. Piti is, is a word that, well, we translate it as rapture, but it's because that's the kind of thing that, you know, this Christian thing where they you know, they suddenly go into this trance. And uh, I saw some people you know, in, the, in this, in speaking in tongues. But have you seen them shaking as well? Yeah, they nod like that. This is, uh, they think this is Jesus Christ. And we say, well, guess what? Then he's in all of us. <laughs> he's coming to see us as well when we're meditating. He came to see me in my first, first meditation course. Boy. 
he was right there with me, I guess. And eventually it went away. So the, these can be quite pernicious. They stay with you and they can be hard to get rid of. One teacher, he suggested that you should even tell them to stop sometimes. Sometimes you have to say, stop. Because just saying swaying, swaying, or shaking, shaking, it, the mind still likes it. It's like, yeah, shaking, 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 shaking. So you're not really mindful anymore. So if you say to yourself, stop, it stops sometimes. Rain on your own parade. Why? Because it's useless. And it, and it can be dangerous because the, you get more and more and more and you, 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 you don't know when to stop. And it, it, it just goes up and up and up and stronger and stronger until you explode, until you break. So, vidhi pasadhi. Pasadhi means tranquility. So some people experience great states of calm in their meditation. This is the most common question I get from people who come to me from other meditation traditions. Sometimes in this tradition as well, but mostly other meditation traditions. And I'm not trying to say this one is special and better, but... Well, it's special and better. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, be because... Um, I, maybe it's not even other traditions. It's people who practice on their own. Let's put it that way. I don't so much get people from other traditions anyway, but I'm, talk I'm thinking of people who practice, you know, they've just heard someone teach them, teach this meditation, they've never really gone to a meditation course. But quite often I get this question from both Buddhists, from both cultural Buddhists and Westerners. I practice for some time, but then I get to a point where there's nothing, and I don't know what to do. Some people call it emptiness. You get to this state of emptiness. This is called in... in 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 these term in in this tradition it's called tranquility or pasati, which means quiet. So there is something there. You just say to yourself, quiet, quiet, and you you, you are aware of it as a quiet experience. Because when you do that it disappears. And you say oh, it wasn't quite so special anyway. Because the, the the thinking in the mind is you've now gotten somewhere where meditation is no longer applicable. Right? There's nothing to be mindful of, it's just quiet. I have no defilements arising, no bad things arising. So you think of it as special, and you can stick with it for a while, but it does disappear. It, it's not permanent. It's a state of quiet. It's quite common. And it doesn't lead anywhere except more quiet. So we should, we should not reject it, but we should see it for what it is. It's just quiet. We say quiet. And then we have, let's see if I can get all these. No, ten, there's ten of them, so you got a long way to go, sorry. Uh, and we've got one, two, yeah, I'll get them all. I can't remember the poly ones. The next one is confidence. Uh, confidence, which means, I think, adimoka, I think, is the word. Yeah, yeah, I know. Huh? Sukha? is near the end, or I'm going in the wrong order. I don't remember the order so well. But uh, I've got them in mind. We've got three so far. So number four, we'll say, is confidence. A person has great faith. You get to a point in your practice where you suddenly say, this is it. And that's good. That's a good thing, right? Man, my teacher, he's the best. 
I gotta get my parents to practice this. I gotta get my brother and my sister and my dog to practice this. This is it. And you just go on and on. And you're so you can be sometimes confident in yourself. I heard this one story from a Bangladeshi monk. He said, "You Westerners, you shoot for the moon." This was when I, this was first course I did way back. Well, not way back. Thirteen years ago. When I first, I didn't know anything. I was just talking to him, and this new dumb Canadian kid. And he says, "You shoot for the moon." He said, "There was this other Canadian meditator here. I think he's Canadian, Western." And he came out of his room one day and he just started shouting, I am the new Buddha. I am the new Buddha. <laughs> and I always, like, I never saw this guy, so I don't know what it was like, but I always think of this, this Western kid coming out of his room shouting this, or, you know, just going crazy. And I always think of that when I think of confidence, because that's the supreme example of this, this uh, phenomenon. We get so sure of ourselves, we think we're enlightened. We get to a point where you think, I'm it. This happens to some people. For most people, it's just a sense of confidence that comes up, which is a good thing. It's really, these are positive experiences, but you can see how it becomes a bad thing. Because as you're confident, you stop meditating. You become sure of yourself, you become, um, and, and you get caught up in the, the this feeling of confidence which leads you to think about how you oh when I go home I'm going to teach this and I'm going to tell this person this and this and this and so I'm going to solve all my problems I had one guy he got to this was really bad confidence he, he came up to me one day he says I'm leaving I said you're not finished your course yeah I know but here's what I here's what I was thinking I was sitting in meditation and I realized I know exactly what I have to do to make my business a success and six months tops I'm going to be rich and I'm going to build you a meditation center because I was staying at I, you know I had a meditation center but it wasn't my own I'm going to build you a meditation center and then I'm going to come back and, and, and then I'll finish the course oh, and I argued with him and I couldn't convince him I said okay you're going to go you're going to go never heard from him again so, you know, that's how it goes you have to be careful Confidence is very dangerous. This is what the atheists, the skeptics, will tell you. you know? Challenge your own beliefs. Because if it's true, it will withstand the challenge. Don't trust your own mind. And that's a lot of what meditation is, because you know, if we could trust our mind, we wouldn't need to study it, we'd just use it. You know? but meditation is like taking it apart and, and fixing the mind. If the mind is broken, you can't trust it. So you have to be... This is why we use the meditation, the, the mantra. Uh, liking, liking, pain, pain. Because we don't trust ourselves to observe it. We can't trust ourselves to observe it objectively. How could you observe something objectively with a mind that is habitually subjective? So the mantra makes us objective. It is pain. So you say to yourself, pain, pain. There's no room for the mind to wiggle. It can't... Um, it can't project, it can't judge, it can't extrapolate. It can only know. And so you straighten out the mind. That's number four. Number five, so you should say to yourself, uh, 
thinking, thinking might be a good one, or knowing, or feeling, feeling to feel faithful. You can just say to yourself, faithful, faithful, I don't know. I would say knowing, knowing is better. It's a good thing, but uh, it's, it's not a replacement for mindfulness. The next one, can't remember the name. Bhagaha, Bhagaha, I do remember. Bhagaha means energy, effort. Some people will do, will get very much effort in their practice, very much energy arising in their practice, and where they feel like they can practice all day and all night without stop. They really have this supercharge in them. And to an extent, that's a good thing, right? To have energy is better than you're, you're out of energy. But it can also become a hindrance if it overcomes, it overtakes your mindfulness. I had this happen as well. A woman, she told me about her experience. She said, suddenly I had such energy and she just found herself running around the, around the monastery compound. You know, this monastery was, was a highly touristed monastery. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very beautiful place, a wonderful place to meditate. But during the day, there was the section where the tourists would come and take pictures and look at the view down of the city. And so she went walking through this, and she said, tourists are looking at me like I'm crazy. And, uh, but she said, I couldn't stop it. I just had so much energy. So this actually happens. You have so much energy that you... Well, you can stop it, you see. If you're mindful of it, then you can just be mindful of the energy. But she was following it. She had the energy, and so she had to use it. People who are, um, who are athletes, Athletes tend to have this problem. They can't sit still because there's so much energy inside there. The habits, the body's habits are, are very strong. And then we have upatana, which means mindfulness, sati. Sati, ah, I know which one I missed. Oh, what do we have? One, two, three, four, five. This is number six, so I'm going to get them all. Number six is upatana, which means mindfulness or sati. You have very strong mindfulness. So the meditator is able to catch everything, rising, falling, sitting, touching, seeing, feeling, you can catch everything. And so it starts, it, this is a good thing, you know, but uh, it can become, see they say in the text it can become, even that can become a... Um, an attachment where the mind is uh, where you become complacent because of it and you're not really see, because sati has to be accompanied with knowledge you have to consider the object you have to really know the object instead of just catching it, catching it and going you have to grasp the object so See, and, and I'm 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 shaking here because I'm not you know, I'm not totally convinced about this because to me, it seems like sati could also be referring to past and future, because the word sati means remembrance. It doesn't mean mindfulness. That's a mistranslation. Everyone agrees it's not the correct translation. Um, sati means remembrance, so it's used to mean remembering past and future, and this really happens. Meditators remember so much, they remember things they never remembered before, and so they think about these things and start crying sometimes, this is a, it's an important thing to work, to let that come out but it's easy to get caught up in it 
or the future, this man who had these plans for the future. This is some sort. This is some sort of remembrance in the sense of being able to uh, catch details and build thoughts based on on one another, even the future. But it, it, this happens a lot where the meditators taken out of the present because they are so clear in their mind that they apply that to concepts, to to past, to future, and then they lose the present moment. And then we have jnana. Jnana means knowledge. Jnana can be super knowledges. So you can be able to read people's minds. You can remember your past lives. Anuruddha once asked Sariputta, Anuruddha, before he was enlightened, he said to Sariputta, he said, look, my mind is totally focused. I can observe the cosmos, the 10,000 world system, all at once. So he had this great magical knowledge, or super, super knowledge, able to encompass the whole of the, the universe in his thoughts, or the whole of the solar system, or whatever. And yet I'm not free from defilement. So he was bemused by this. And Sariputta, you know what Sariputta said to him? I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it was something like, that you say that your mind is well composed, that's your conceit. That you say you can encompass the whole of the solar system in your mind, that's distraction. <laughs> and that you that you're worried, or that you say that 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 you say that you are still not free from defilement, that's your worry. He <laughs> totally shot him down. You see, even these wonderful experiences, wonderful even having great solid concentration, conceit. My concentration is good. Knowledges, special knowledges, they can be a distraction. They obviously are a distraction. Wonderful things. Great to remember your past lives, but no, certainly not the goal. They say people can remember, you know, you can train yourself to remember thousands of past lives. Could you imagine wasting all your time on that? kind of neat. The Buddha said it's neat, but that's not the goal. So it can become a hindrance as well. But if you don't believe in such things, and, and if you don't not interested in... There, there is another aspect of this about knowledge in a general sense, like knowledge of the Buddha's teaching. Thinking about and memorizing, you know, going over the text, going over the Buddha's teaching. And, you know, people often substitute this for meditation. They uh, they think a lot about it. And they think about yeah, yesterday was not the same as today. I'm and I'm I'm old now and I was young before and soon I'm going to die and so on. And everyone has to die. Yeah, that's so true. And so they think about the Buddha's teaching without actually experiencing it in the present moment. That's we're already at. How many are we at? Seven. No. Number eight is eight is happiness. So people experience great happiness, and happiness is not the path, it's a nice side byproduct. But they're so happy that they stop meditating, and they like it, and they get attached to it. Number nine is upeka, feel, people feel calm, which is kind of associated with quiet. Basadi means quiet, upeka means calm. So they actually feel this calm feeling. 
doing, you say to yourself, calm, calm. You have to be careful, even with these good states. Because they're good, but they're not a replacement for studying. And they're not a replacement for learning about the truth, learning the truth. So even when you feel calm, you have to study it. You have to be objective about it. Stop, don't let your mind become subjective and say, this is good, this is enough, this is me, this is mine, this is stable, this is controllable, and give rise to delusions and attachments. And number ten is called nikanti. Nikanti means the subtle attachment to these things. And the subtle attachment can be the attachment to the other nine. So anything special that comes up, the attachment is then the tenth one here. But it can also be subtle attachment to anything. So attachment, nikanti means uh, enjoying something. So maybe you're sitting by a waterfall and you enjoy the sound. But you're no longer being, you're no longer really investigating reality. You're just enjoying the sound. I know one monk, tell all these bad monk stories, no? He, he bought, he <laughs> my introduction to him when I first, I've, I've known him quite a while, but the first, when I first met him, he, uh, in fact, he might have been the one who said, I am the new Buddha. I never found out, I never asked. But it may have been him. He, uh, he said, how I meditate, I bought this stereo system. And I get these nature sounds, not even nature sounds, I think Pink Floyd as well, he was using, he was, he bought a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon, and he had these wonderful, he said, I've got these wonderful headphones, so soft you can lie on them, and I just turn on Pink Floyd, and, and, and I meditate. Not my idea of meditation, but to each their own. Um, because this is attachment, so this creates some kind, well, from our point of view, it's not necessarily bad, it's not creating you suffering, although I think, you know, there is kilesa there, I think, but let's say maybe there's not because his mind is focused and, and calm and tranquil. But he's not studying. So if if you agree with me that meditation is that, or if you think, well, let's study, if you're interested in studying, then, well, you've stopped studying. If you believe that meditation is just a chance to find peace and calm, well, fine. There are meditations like that, but insight meditation is about studying yourself and anything that stops you from studying yourself this is uh, a hindrance whether it's a good thing or a bad thing so I think that's an important teaching something we should keep in mind and that's all I have to say about that enough talking now we'll do meditation together